Before we get started, um, I just want to ask everyone who's listening, if you find the podcast or this episode helpful, please share, so like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you're listening. Uh, leave a review if you can. It really helps to get the podcast out to whoever it can help. And um, the easiest way for you guys to help me get more listeners is uh to share it with people that you think it'll help. So um, I really appreciate it. And um, on to the show. This is the Cherished You Podcast. I am your host, Rama. There is a huge trigger warning for this episode on on suicide, narcissism, abuse, and cults. Um, This episode really, um, I dive into some personal experiences that may or may not uh, be ready to be heard for everyone listening. So please... uh, proceed with caution. Welcome back. Uh, this is going to be the second episode um, where I'm, I'm really kind of um, laying out my own story of living with a narcissistic mother in what, um, like the milestones in my life that I remember that were all a kind of building up to me leaving. Um, this is also an attempt to um, openly talk about my story, both for myself, but also for anyone else who maybe thinks that they, what they're experiencing might fall into this category and they feel like they're alone or they're making it up or they're exaggerating what they're going through. Um, this is just to help all of you who maybe fall into that camp to um, understand that what you're experiencing is real and the way you feel is valid. My other goal with this series is um, to really kind of highlight what it's like living in a family that resembles a cult. And this um, this is kind of like something I've been, I've talked about in some previous episodes as well. But I think that we're I'm, I'm i'm actually really glad to see so much information coming from survivors of cults but i think what gets lost in that conversation and why there's a lot of us who don't who weren't in a cult per se but we lived in families that very much operated like those but there's really no language for us um, you can say you have a narcissistic parent. Most people really don't understand what that means. Um, if you say that your family is a cult, you'll probably get told that you're exaggerating when you absolutely are not. And you don't need to have a group of like, you know, tens and tens and hundreds and thousands of people to be involved for it to be a cult. It can be a cult of just four people. In my case, it can be a cult of just six people. And it very much is that. Um and I think some of this, the, the language around cult is really helpful in trying to give um, 
children of narcissistic parents some kind of language around what they experienced, not just the abuse they personally experienced, but the collective family abuse that they experienced and saw. Because that, I think in the healing, when we're, when we're healing out of, when, we're, you know, when we come out of these family units, if we're trying to heal all that stuff, really, I think the hardest part of it really gets to when you realize that there were other people who went through what you went through and chose to make different decisions. And somehow, if you're the one who's calling out your family, you're the one who gets ostracized, you're the one who gets pushed aside, and you feel even more alone than you already did. And also, I think it gets, um, it's a phenomenon that gets lost. And I really am hoping to shine a light on it because I would have greatly benefited if there were therapists that I had come across when I was going through the early part of my, my healing who could have given me this kind of language. If I had known that maybe a cult therapist could have been helpful, but nobody talks about single family cults really, um, it, it, I think I would have been further along in my healing a little faster if, um, if I had just had the language. And so this is my attempt to maybe help anybody else who's in that boat to um, give them the leg up I didn't have when I was going through this part of my journey. So um, I, uh, this, uh, this portion is really gonna be about um, my, uh, my teenage years, um, starting from around like eight or nine years old and until I graduate high school. And that's really what I'm gonna talk about today. There were a lot of things that happened during this time. These years are formative for everybody. All right, yeah, like it's, uh, you're coming out of childhood and childhood kind of lays a bedrock that you really don't see. But I think the experiences we go through in our early teens, like our puberty years and high school, when you're really trying to figure out where you fit in the world um, and you know you try on different personas for size to see what feels right, what doesn't. And also um, it's, um, I know I, I was, uh, when I, I listen a lot to um, Dr. Romani. She talks a lot about narcissism as well. She's probably one of the first um, popular people I saw online who talked about narcissism from a clinical point of view, but also personal. And she often um, refers to this age as like individuating. And I think in in, ther in, in psychology and, and psychiatry, it kind of gets um, in, a, in the development of a child. That's what this portion of time is about. And... I, overall, I wasn't necessarily a hard teenager. I didn't do anything out of sorts. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I didn't go anywhere because I wasn't allowed to. And a lot of that, because of the South Asian heritage, was kind of given, um, I had kind of just tossed up to culture. Um, another cult word that really doesn't get talked about. But the cult and culture, I always think is really fascinating because it really is a set of ideals that insulates you from other people who don't think like that, who don't operate that way. And I'm I, during this time was really when I started to realize the the vast difference between Western culture and um, the South Asian culture that I was being raised in. I was being raised in both simultaneously. And one is telling me to conform and stay within this family unit that is very tight-lipped, that really doesn't um, allow for anybody to see anything other than what my mother wanted them to see. 
And then there's this Western culture that is very much about individuating and being your own self and um, isolating yourself to the degree where nobody else is like you and there's nobody who could understand. Like, and it, it almost goes too far in the other direction. And these, these years were hard enough as they are, like developmentally. Um, I was also dealing with coming up against my mother and really kind of tapping into some skills that I won't know are skills for a really long time. My neurodivergence also showed up a lot in my teen years, in my early tween and teen years. And, but I, what I remember most about this time period was the absolute, um, consumption of my being, of my existence was around the fact that I was always depressed. I don't remember any one of these years where I was, um, happy for any extended period of time. And I mean, more than a couple of days, I don't actually remember any period of time from when I was like eight or nine till I graduated high school. Like I was 17. Like, I don't remember a time where I wasn't depressed. Um, I, in these years, I attempted suicide twice. The first time was when I was 15. Um, the second time was actually when I was, um, 19. It's a little bit after this, this time. And that was, um, that had slightly different circumstances around it, but the the one where I was actually um, really, I remember like toning in on information that was um, that would make it look like I died naturally, that they wouldn't be able to tell that I actually killed myself. I remember thinking about ways of how to do that. One specific incident um, is I was in... Um, chemistry class in high school and this was in 10th grade um it was right before it got really really bad and it was a 10th grade I think it was I think it was I'm pretty sure that's when it was but um and it was actually right after it was it was right after the attempt actually yeah and I was thinking about doing it again and because I I remember feeling upset that I had failed. That was really, um, at the time it didn't, it, it just felt like another thing that I wasn't good at because I, I just, I just, I didn't feel like I was good at anything. And that was another thing that I failed at. So that was something that was, I was really hanging on to. So I was really looking and scanning the information around me and this is before the internet, right? So the internet really didn't exist yet. So, um, you know, I, I didn't have access to that kind of information. So I was just really just kind of keeping my eyes and ears open, looking, you know, the books that I read and um, the classes I took and all that stuff. So I was always just kind of scanning for information around what would work um, this time. And I remember it was in chemistry class and we were talking about buffers I really, I rem this sticks out like so, so much in my head. And my chemistry teacher said that, yeah, like we have a system that buffers in our body so that if we eat or drink something that's too acidic or too basic, we don't die. Like if you, and then I remember he said this part, it's like if you injected yourself with orange juice, you would die because you bypass the buffering that your stomach and you know, the rest of your body would do when you drink orange juice. And I was like, oh man, so if I just... If I just injected myself with orange juice, I would die. That really, I remember that so clearly. And 
And that memory has stuck with me all these years, mainly because I remember the glee that I felt that this was something that would work. And I don't, I don't know why I didn't try it. I honestly don't know what happened. Um, the one thing I do know is that um, that was also the year that when we had uh, winter break, um, we went, my, my family and I went to Pakistan and I was late coming back. We never missed school. But that year I missed two extra weeks. So we were supposed to be back the for second week in January, we didn't get back until the end of January. And I remember that that year when I came back from winter break and being in Pakistan all that time, I remember a couple of my teachers, one of them who really just um, was a lifeline for me in high school. She was like, oh my God, I got so scared because I thought they married you off. That was something that a lot of people knew. That was something that my mother would probably do. And, um, and I think that I hung on to that for a long time as a reason to not try to um, kill myself again um, for a little while anyway. And um, I, it was after that point that I had a couple of teachers who really kind of um, gave me a life raft. They really kind of just kind of kept me focused on school and they kept trying to remind me that there was life outside of living with my family, even though I don't think they understood the severity of what was going on. They just saw what I was going through. And I like, I've always been so grateful for those teachers because I don't know if anyone else saw or not, but I felt invisible. I like my friends didn't even know. And I felt I was so alone and it was just so, um, uh, I felt so abandoned by, by not only just my own, my own mother and my family, because everyone else in my family just pretended that everything was okay. I was the one who felt like I just couldn't keep up the facade. And, that, and you know, that was another thing that I was failing at. So I felt like I was a failure just as a person. And these couple of teachers who really just kept their eye on me, and I really do, uh, like I remember they were just always, be like very subtly checking up on me, never made me feel any kind of way about it. But um, they really kept me focused on trying to go to college. And I was like, it was never a question of whether or not I would go. I just, in my head, I just didn't know if I was going to live long enough. And so these years, like are in my, in, in my memory, in my in my um, healing of, of a lot of that stuff and, you know, and me still um, in my feeling of that time period even now is really just feeling for that version of me who just didn't, ha couldn't see a way out. And the depression was so bad and my inability to um, perform a happiness the way that my siblings did or my, 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 my parents did. Everyone else around me was, um, I just felt like was, was okay with everything. And I was the only one who wasn't. And I couldn't, I didn't know how to keep up the facade. I didn't have it in me to do it even then. And, um, but I do remember just the very severe depression and the constant feeling like a failure thing that just hounded me all of these years. 
And I was honestly really scared for a long time that I didn't know if I was going to get into college. And um, the, the one thing that actually did happen here that I haven't mentioned before is that my my little brother, my youngest brother, he was born um, the the August before my sophomore year. So my sophomore year was really like pivotal for a lot of things. But what also happened is that after my sophomore year, and my brother was like one, my mother started spending a lot of time in Pakistan separate from the rest of the family. So, and my, my dad is uh, very kind of um, laid back. As long as you were, you, you kind of looked like you were following the rules, he really didn't have a lot of energy or bandwidth to be as controlling as my mother was. So when my mother wasn't there, my mother wasn't there for most of my, so like the second half of my sophomore year. She came back for a little bit, but then she went back in my junior year and my senior year, she was in Pakistan almost the entire time. Those first three years, we really didn't see my younger brother because he was with her there in, in Pakistan with her. And um, my other brother, I think, was also going through, um, my mother had put him in boarding school in Pakistan too, I think around that time. So it was like me and my sister, if we were ever going to have a relationship that was um, just between the two of us that didn't have my mother involved, that would have been the time to do it. We didn't. We never really, um, she never really liked me, to be honest. Um, that's, I think that's still true to this day. Um, and then um, we just never, even given the opportunity to bond, we didn't. And so I was kind of, um, I was kind of like, uh, within you know within the limits set by set by my mom even though she wasn't there like I wasn't allowed to do any after school stuff but I did do some work on the paper I was allowed to do that um, I did um, I did some musical stuff so I was in the band I was in the, uh, the band or the orchestra for some musicals during that time the last couple of years of high school um, all that stuff was fine if it was school related my dad pretty much let us do it and that was where I kind of was able to, because my mother wasn't there, I was able to get in touch with certain things about myself. I don't know if I would have had she been there because of how controlling she is. And then I also during this time, because she wasn't there, I, I do remember feeling um, not as depressed some of the depression had been lifted when i when i realized that she would be gone for months at a time um the only issue was that with her it was um she would she could and would come back at a drop of a hat so we really wouldn't know when she would be back but as long as like we knew that for the next day she was still in pakistan it was like okay she didn't get on the flight today she won't be here tomorrow <laughs> like we knew that much like that was that was literally i remember that's literally how it worked for a really long time what I also did during this time was um, we were getting ready to um, apply to colleges. So there were some like, you know, SAT classes I had to take. Standardized testing in me just never worked out very well. But I did okay on the um, on the ACTs. Um, I did okay on the SATs. It wasn't my greatest work, but I just, I don't test well on standardized tests. I never really have. Um, but what I did do during that time was when we were coming up with colleges with my guidance counselor, when me and my guidance counselor were talking about colleges, I um, purposely didn't choose anything nearby. Um, I knew I didn't have a lot of money to work with as far as for my parents. I couldn't go to them like the way that some of my classmates who apply to like 10 schools. That's at least $100 per school. That's $1,000 in application fees. Like that was not going to be something I could do. 
So I really only applied to five schools, which was not that much. And really, I thought I had the chance to get into two of them. Um, I got into one. I got waitlisted on the other one. Um, I don't know what would have happened with the waitlist. I never actually put in the paperwork to be reconsidered for the waitlist portion. So I don't know if I would have gotten into, um, into that school. But I got into the one that my mother wanted me to go to. So that I was allowed to go. And that was in Boston. And that was Boston University. And that was my ticket out of town. And I remember when I got the, I actually did call my mom the day I got the, uh, um, the acceptance stuff because it was, you know, it was, you know, you always knew if you got into college or not, whether you got a small envelope or a big envelope and mine was a huge envelope. So I knew I got in, but, um, I, I really didn't care that it was the school she wanted. I just wanted to make sure that I had to live at the school. I did not want to live at home. And that was the only thing I knew. And I was hoping to God that I got into that one because that one I would for sure be allowed to go to. We all knew that that was fine because she, for two years, had been like, oh, when we had visited Boston one time in my sophomore year, she's like, oh, you should go to school here. Oh, look, it's like Braintree Road. And it was all this weird stuff because I was obsessed with the brain. Um, So I always said that I was going to be a brain surgeon because I had to be a doctor and I love the brain. So I was allowed to like choose within medicine what I was allowed to do. So I chose brain surgeon because A, you don't really hear a lot of brain surgeons um, and B, um, I had been obsessed with the brain since I was like three years old. So, uh, you know, and that was acceptable to my parents. Became a different kind of brain surgeon, just not the kind that it actually cuts into brains. I work more with the psyche, but um, that I was allowed to go to, to BU. So it was, I was, no one was happier than me when I was able, when I got in. And despite all the problems that I would, um, have to deal with when I got there, that is still one of the, it was still one of the most important experiences I think of my life to even to date, because I learned stuff at school, at, at college that I would not had my life gone differently. If had I not been that focused, had I not had the help from the teachers that I did to to really figure out a way to make that part happen. There were, I didn't do it on my own. I had a lot of help along the way, but a lot of that help was not from my family. It was from people who, who, who were effectively strangers. I mean, I was their student, they were my teachers, they were my guidance counselors. It was people who could see I was, I needed help and chose to help me without any kind of expectation as to what I would be able to give to them because I didn't have anything. And I still really, um, to this day, am very grateful for those people because those people saved my life. I don't know if I would have um, lived past high school if I hadn't gotten into BU. If that had been the only school I had gotten into and there was no other choice. Um, Even if it was a preferred choice of my mother, when it came down to it, there was no other option. Like, well, I had to go. There was no way I wasn't going to college. It was too important for her to show to everybody she knew that I could go to college. Um, Even though I got hit with every horror story on the planet about wasting her time and wasting her money and this, that, and the other. But um, that was really, really important um, for me to be able to get into college and then be able to get into that specific college at that particular time. Um, Because had that not happened, I really do not know if I would have lived past the age of 17. I really do not know. 
um, because I I didn't see any other way out. I, it was either I go to college or I get married. My other option was to go to Pakistan, and I refused to do that because I didn't want to um, be under her control. And I knew that if I went to BU, I wouldn't be. Like, there's only so much she can do when she had, you know, other kids um, that she needed to perform as a mother for. But all of this to say, and I hope it kind of comes across, but um, there were a certain confluence of events that happened during these, um, my, my tween and teen years, like middle school and high school, where they kind of had to go exactly the way that they did in order for me to be able to get out and go to college the way that I wanted to. Had my mother not you know, decided that she wanted to stay in the U.S. instead of Pakistan for, for those couple of years. Would things have been different, most likely? I mean, I have no idea, but I I would assume so because that's a really major factor. Um, would I have had a clear idea of who I was? I had some, when I left for college, I had more of a foundation of who I was than I think any of my siblings ever have. And they know they I mean to this day I think they really only know themselves to the degree of which my mother tells them who they are and I because of those last couple of years of high school where my mother was not around I you know was able to kind of tap into things that I liked um uh, with the with enough freedom to explore who I was, you know, within reason, like I wasn't a party girl or anything like that. I didn't do anything like that. But, you know, I learned that I liked to write. I learned that I liked sports. I learned that I liked taking pictures. I learned that I liked, I really like, I always knew I loved playing the flute, but I um, enjoyed working as part of a show that was different than just being in band. Um, I, I learned that I knew how to write. I never knew I I didn't know I knew how to write up until that time. Um, I knew that I um, I learned that I I could learn how to tell a story. Um, I was told at that point that I couldn't make sense when I talked. My mother made sure, my mother used to say that to me all the time, and um, I learned that I could learn how to do that. Um, Whereas when she was around, it was like, well, if you didn't know, if she said you didn't know how to do it, you couldn't, you didn't have the option of being anything different than what she said. And so um, those years were really important in the sense that I learned that just because she said something was true about me, A, doesn't mean that it's true. B, doesn't mean that I can't change it. And that really kind of shifted some fundamental things inside of me before I went away to college and before I really kind of, you know, got away from her and learned how to get to know people outside of her identity because I was always like her kid. And when I went away to college, I I got to be just me. Nobody knew who she was. Nobody cared who she was. So um, I don't think any of my college experiences would have happened had, had my high school not gone the way that it did. And that was really, really important. And the fact that my, my, my suicide attempt didn't work out. Um, although back then I thought it was a failure because I was trying to leave the pain that I was living with. Um, sometimes things work out the way they're supposed to. And I'm, and I'm glad that, um, that attempt, that first attempt didn't work because I would not have had the chance to see what life could be had I succeeded in that, in that first attempt. So, 
that's um that's the that's really like the end of this section of it. My next um my next episode I'll go more into my post college years and what happened there. And um my uh there will uh there'll be another uh, trigger warning on that one too for suicide because there's another suicide attempt coming in that section as well. But um yeah, that's all for now. And uh, thanks so much for listening to this part. And um, I hope that you guys will join me for the next part so we can um, kind of dive uh, dive a little bit deeper into what it's like when you realize that um, your house isn't normal. <laughs> your family is not normal and how I figured that out. So uh, thanks so much for listening. Um, I really do appreciate it. And I'll talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Cherished You podcast. If you could please leave me a review, um, subscribe and share. It really helps get the podcast out to those who it will help the most.